It's Dr. Stu's Podcast, the podcast where you get to hear Dr. Stu. <laughs> With me, your host, Dr. Stu, and my protege, Bliss Young. How are you doing, Bliss? I'm doing great. A little, little sniffly, but okay. Still sniffly? I'm still sniffly. You, you were sniffly last podcast, too. <laughs> getting, getting through. Funny how that works. Hey, this is podcast number 130, 130. Uh, we thank you for listening. We appreciate uh, the time that you give us. Uh, whether you're in traffic or at home or in the bathtub, it's uh, always nice to be with <laughs> <laughs> with you. In, uh, with you, uh, you can reach us on iTunes. You can find us on drstewspodcast.com or click on the link on birthinginstincts.com or Facebook or Instagram or whatever else. And you can write us at ask Dr. Stu. That's a s k d r s t u at gmail.com. We do look at all the mail and we sometimes bring things up uh, online when it's. Uh, when it's appropriate. And we love we love letters from you and questions and things that you want to share or suggest. It's it's really lovely to get the feedback. So Yeah, and it's really interesting to hear from people who listen to the podcast uh, through the email. I get from really all over the world. You know, from as far as Australia. I recently just had a email. We're gonna get to this topic recently, but I got an email from Elka in um, on Kodiak Island. Where's that? Alaska. Oh, in Alaska. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. And she had a breech baby uh, up there, and then no one would help her. <laughs> so she had it by herself, or she no? She basically, I think they had to they had to take the baby. They had to go to the mainland, mm. um, because to Anchorage or, or someplace where they take them. But but you know she wasn't in labor, but she was breech. There was just nobody. Nobody would touch the thing with a ten foot pole, mm. and it's very typical. One of the things I also read this past week was um, that. Hospital. Well, you know what? I want to wait to get into this because you had a couple things you wanted to talk about first. Well, I want to tell you something funny that just came to my mind. Tell me something funny, and then you wanted to talk a little bit about your new venture. Sure. Um, so I've been listening to more podcasts, by the way, just to kind of hear like what people do, and you know, just like as research. Um, and I was noticing that everybody was talking so fast, and I kept thinking. I really should send a message to these people telling them that I think they're talking too fast. Well, I talk too fast. No, I mean really fast. And I thought, gosh, this must be like a trend. Like maybe we should be talking faster so we get through more subjects or something. And I realized that on my like... Oh no, you had had the speed up one and a half times? Isn't that funny? Oh my God. So I kept thinking that everybody in podcasts... Oh, that's hilarious. Because I was listening to us recently myself, just to because it'd been a while since we yeah. had done one, and I wanted to sort of hear how we sounded. And I do realize that I do talk fast. You talk very smoothly, eloquently. Oh, You're thanks. very blissful. But <laughs> you I haven't called me blisterious. No, really. I haven't. Uh, yeah, <laughs> the blisterious one or blister. <clears throat> or blister. Anyways, I thought that was kind of a funny story. So, um, yeah, I. I have had a vision about what I want to do with my practice besides doing home deliveries and home visits and all of that. One of the things I really missed about the sanctuary was um, that we could build community. So in my vision, haven't gotten to it, just been busy, but um, I've been wanting to have opportunities for my clients to be able to meet each other and get together, right? Because if you do all home visits, nobody ever sees each other. So um, I'm starting a childbirth education class which I'm really excited about. I did it at the sanctuary and um, I'm collaborating with another um, doula. She's called the birth into it. Hayes Hawk. And she's amazing. She is. And um, we're creating some new ways of teaching childbirth education. <clears throat> and I'm super excited. It's a little bit on the fringe. And so 
Bliss on the Fringe. Yeah, so I'm... Yeah, that, well, that's actually not surprising. Yeah, I'm... <laughs> you, are, you are very innovative. You're very clever and you're very... Uh, uh, you know, you, you create new paradigms. That's Thank what you do. Thank you. Yeah, so I think I'm a little, like, um, gun-shy from, from my experience at the sanctuary. Like, if you put yourself out there, you you know, you have more opportunity to kind of have criticism and... <laughs> of course, yeah, you think? And I'm sensitive. I think, you know, I acknowledge you all the time. I think you, it feels like you let a lot of this roll off your back and like you don't, you know, you just do what you do and you speak openly about how you feel about things and I really respect that about you. It's it's inspiring to me. I hope you have heard me say that before. Yeah, but you, you, should, you should be my pillow. I should be your pillow. That's yeah. an interesting... No, I'm just, like, no. You <laughs> pillow scre- talk? You scream, no, you scream into your pillow. Oh. Yeah, never mind. It went right, went right over your head. It did. Right. I'm like, pillow talk? Right. Um, so anyways, I'm a sensitive person, So, but I'm trying to... Again, I, I've talked about this in past podcasts. I really feel like you have to find your authentic voice and speak openly because it's your gift to give to the world. And um, if I am being conscious about my feelings getting hurt, then then people are not benefiting from my true voice. And so I'm, I'm finding it again, and this class is part of that. And so we're creating sacred space. We're talking about rituals. We're talking about the archetypes. Um, we're doing some talk about how sexuality affects your labor and the support that you and your partner and exchanges that you have in labor. Um, and then we're including a little bit of kind of tantric breathing work. Um, so... I'm super excited. We're starting on August 5th and then we're going to be doing it every other month. Um, and it's not, it's for my clients, but it's also for anybody out in the community who's wanting to go a little bit deeper. You want to, you want to come? Mm, no, I have a question. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah, I, you know what? I would, I wouldn't mind coming to one just yeah. because that's how I got started in this whole process in the first place was coming to some of the meetings at the sanctuary and stuff mm-hmm. that sort of, or just going to some of the peer reviews. Even when I was, before I was even doing home birthing, I would be invited to these things because I was, so the backup physician. So that's sort of how I learned some of the things I learned, right? You know, that I learned to, to make me the person that I am right now or the practitioner that I am right now or both. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, I would come. But my question, mm-hmm. I had a question. Obviously, you're in Southern California. Um, would you ever consider doing something like this with Skype or yes. whatever? So people who live in New York or people who live in yes. Dallas could be taking your class couldn't couldn't you just have everybody like all the computers facing you with all the skype people on it yes actually i eventually will be doing an online program um in preparation for my international travel that i'll be doing in a couple of years when my son graduates high school i want to have an opportunity to still be able to serve clients um in a different kind of way like you know jenny joseph in um florida Florida. she she had the JJ way, I think. Yeah. Um, but she's, you know, she sees tons of people and she says, I don't have to have my hands on every woman's vagina in order to support their delivery. So I, I think that that has inspired me. Yeah, to that know. would be, that would be great. And again, I'm, I'm sort of, I'm sort of limiting myself by saying Skype. That's sort of dating myself. Now there's, a, there's a million <laughs> other ways to have meetings and stuff online. Yeah. That, yeah. But definitely I'll have right. online programs at some point. So, um, that's pretty exciting. Yeah. Very exciting for you. I mm-hmm. think that's great. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think that, uh, anything that we can do to, to make the experience for a woman and her family better, uh, so that they have lifetime good memories as opposed to sort of lifetime sad memories, which you and I encounter way too often in our roles as, as, you know, uh, 
bloggers and people who, you know, talk to people. And I, you know, through my uh, birthing instincts email, I get questions all the time about people asking me about their previous birth and should it have happened this way and what can they do to prevent that from happening in the next birth. And Mm -hmm. yeah, so this would be great. I think it's great. And I will attend one because quite frankly, if I want to refer people to something like that, Mm -hmm. um, not that I can read every book that I'm given or, or, or um, attend every class that I'm given, but you know, I like to, if I'm going to give a, re- a referral, I think it's a reflection on, on me totally. as well. Mm-hmm. Therefore, I want to be sure what I'm sending to people to isn't, you know, too. <laughs> <laughs> you know. There's there's a midwife for every person and there's um, childbirth education for every type of delivery. You know, what people want. People want to be prepared to how to have a hospital birth. There's lots of stuff out there. Um, people want a natural delivery. There's lots of classes. And people who want to go another deeper level and have something that's really transformative and connective to their partner, um, that's what we're hoping to address. So, there Great. You go. Congratulations. Hey, by the way, I yes. did get an inquiry from a woman who um, called and said, I just want to know what your policy is, she was talking to me, about... Um, delivering a woman at 44 weeks. And I said, well, it's actually a law here in California, but if you include Dr. Fishbein, um, then you would be able to do that. But then I got on the phone with her and I said, I just want to know, like, why? why are you asking that question? Right. <laughs> right. What, have you had a past experience? You know, and um, I think she's in Beirut, I think. And um, she is pregnant with her eighth child. Um, her first one was a, a C-section and she's had vaginal deliveries for all of them, but ended up having two unassisted deliveries for the last two because no one would take care of her. And every time she seems to be just dating a little bit longer. So she, if she has good dates, I'm assuming. Yeah. Well, yeah. and you know, I mean, we have this this mindset, especially, you know, I mean, I know most of what's happening here in California and LA, obviously, of the standard of care being 42 weeks, but I'm on chat groups on Facebook of unassisted women who are doing unassisted deliveries. And many, not many, but there are often stories of women going 44 weeks. So it's not like it's impossible. Um, we no, just but it's an, odd, it. it's an odd question to it's get. It's totally an odd question. <laughs> but um, yeah, so she ended up having to have unassisted deliveries for two or chose to because she wasn't, wasn't getting the support. Mm-hmm. So yeah. would, are there, uh, the other births she had, were they in the hospital? Yes, they were So why couldn't delivery. she just go to the hospital with, her, with the last two? Did she say... I mean, couldn't she just walk in at 44 weeks she and someone would catch it. the baby? But. She considered it, but I think she was starting to understand that she didn't want to have that pressure of what she would be getting from them and how they would overreact and all of those things. Is this a Lebanese woman or is it no, sort of a American, American woman. woman living in Beirut? Yeah, right? and, I, and I said, well, it's interesting if you've had unassisted deliveries to now invite a practitioner back into your experience because usually you've had this empowered experience and you, you know, want to stay that way. Um, and I find women who have unassisted deliveries to be very educated and to really be informed. Um, And she said, you know, it just made her husband a little bit nervous. The last one, baby was probably malpositioned and she was having a lot of pain and it took a lot longer than her other deliveries. And then she had a little bit more bleeding than they thought was normal from their past deliveries. And um, so I said, you know, whatever you choose to do, obviously, is she planning to come back to the United States? Yeah, that's why she was asking. Oh, great. Yeah, so she may be calling you. Or us. Yeah, we'll see. Well, it would be us. 
Would it, <laughs> would it be us? I think it would be us. Uh, okay. So, um, other business. Yeah. Uh, I was reading um, uh, on the internet, I think, I, I think my partner, Howie, sent me an article basically saying, talking about um, how it was in the New York Times. It was a story about how women had to drive 100 miles in, in Missouri, I think, to find, in labor to, find, to get to a hospital because mm-hmm. of all the hospital closures going on in the smaller communities and how many hospitals are either closing or being bought up by large hospitals and then shutting down their OB units in the small hospitals so they can feed the larger hospitals, which are 50 miles further away. Yeah. And this is going on over and over and over. And it's sort of, you know, it leads to a place where she actually went into a hospital there and they said, uh, we can't help you here. We don't, ha- we don't do OB. And they had to call an ambulance and it took 40 minutes for the ambulance to get there. And then it took her three hours to get from there oh, to the other hospital. Unfortunately, she made it. Everything was fine. That sort of thing. But, so, uh, but the New York Times was actually doing a story on it. Not a great fan of the New York Times and some many things that they write. But, but certainly a story like this is probably a legitimate uh, news story. And it brings up a, a much larger discussion for me in what I consider to be the lack of, in, in many aspects of our life, but I'll just confine our discussion today to obstetrics, the lack of what we call stage two thinking. Mm. All right. Now, I've talked about this before on the podcast. Stage one thinking is thinking up some idea that, seems, that sounds good and then implementing it without thinking of the consequences down the road. And a classic one thing would be like external fetal monitoring. Or continuous fetal monitoring. Which is so, not we're going to drop. We're going to we're going to create. Uh, we're going to stop cerebral palsy in its tracks. We're going to catch everything early, and everything's great. And we end up not changing the cerebral palsy rate and increasing the cesarean section rate by five hundred percent. All right, that's basically. The, the, I mean, I could there there are example after example after example of those sorts of things, and you know one of the things that that happens in in pretty much everything that we do, all right, is we get over, when we start to over-regulate things, we start to create, for every problem we regulate, we create two or three new problems. Mm-hmm. And this is, this is classic. This is the classic one that I talk about before, too, is I talk about how pediatricians, in order to make money, pass policies in hospitals that said every newborn needs to be seen by a pediatrician. Mm-hmm. And then the rules change, and the, and the insurance company stop paying for that, and now the doctors are stuck with a policy that says they have to go see these people even if they're not getting paid for them when the policy wasn't put in for health reasons in the first place. It was put in for monetary reasons. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when we start to lump things into these categories um, um, and we start, you know, I, it, I have these, all these thoughts in my mind, so it's really going to be hard for me. I hopefully I can get it out where the people listening will understand what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. And the reason I thought of this was the other day because I was looking up restaurants and I looked up restaurants in, maybe, I think I was in Georgia. Mm-hmm. And I looked up restaurants in Columbus, Georgia. And basically, no, it wasn't, no, it must have been in LA because one of the restaurants came up in my area. It said restaurants in my area. And I must have been in Century City. And one of them came up was a restaurant at the Waldorf Astoria, which is a new hotel in the Beverly Hills. And another one that came up was McDonald's. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay. Uh-huh. So I'm thinking, okay. So we have, a, we have a term called restaurants and it includes McDonald's and it includes the Waldorf Astoria, <laughs> right? And there's no, there's no, you know, you could say fine dining or whatever. I mean, you could start to break it down, but ultimately when it comes to pregnancy, we sort of do the same thing. Right. A woman is pregnant, therefore she's broken. 
therefore she needs monitoring, therefore she needs vaccines, therefore she needs all this testing. Everything is sort of done with what we call a stage one thinking that we are going to solve a problem by, by instituting a policy or, or, or a protocol or a, or, or a um, edict that will make it better. And all it does is it causes more problems down the road. Mm-hmm. We know that. Just last hour we were talking about how you know, doctors come in, they check a patient, she's complete, we start pushing. Right. All right. Why? Why? Why can't some people start pushing and other people eat at McDonald's? Okay. <laughs> I mean, why, why, do, why does everything have to fall into the same category? And so it sort of starts to, you know, get to the idea that like when insurance companies will do things like they'll pay for, they'll, 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 re- they'll refuse to pay for a certain medication. Mm-hmm. I've told this story on the podcast before, but it's been a long time and I'll tell it again. I remember I had a woman who had severe hyperemesis in her first pregnancy. And she's pregnant again. And in the first pregnancy, the only thing that ever worked for her was Zofran. Now, Zofran is an oral anti-nausea medication. It doesn't work for every pregnant woman. A lot of times, homeopathy and that sort of thing or just time will fix it. But this woman was so severe in her first pregnancy that she ended up hospitalized and IVs, and that Zofran finally worked for her. Mm -hmm. So now she's pregnant again, and she's throwing up. She doesn't feel good, and she wants me to write a prescription for Zofran. I get a call from her insurance company's reviewer saying that we can't authorize Zofran unless these things have happened. Have you tried antacids? Yes, we've tried antacids. They don't work for her. Has she been hospitalized yet? Okay. Mm -hmm. What? Has she had to go to the hospital for IVs and has, does she have ketones and stuff like that? I go, well, isn't that what I'm trying to prevent? Right. And he says, well, we can't authorize Zofran unless she's been hospitalized. All right. Mm-hmm. So this is what I'm talking about is that they have a policy in place. Stage one policy says we're not going to pay for this a drug because it's more expensive than Tums, you know, or acupuncture or whatever. They don't even pay for that anyway. So, right. Tums. That's about it. <laughs> Tums, yeah. <laughs> and if we don't do Tums, then she has to be hospitalized, which of course costs the insurance company quite a bit of money. Right. But they figure that, they, that they've done actuarial studies probably that says that, you know, not that many women will, will go to the emergency room and get IVs so we can save money on Zofran by doing it this way. And that's what they do. But they don't, they don't think of the, the stage two thing is, What's the cost to the mother? Well, what's the, I mean, in, in not money, but in, in health and in, in well-being. And it doesn't even matter because this is the policy that we have. And, and then we have doctors like this reviewer who are just saying, oh, I'm sorry, my hands are tied. I have to follow this policy. And I look and I talk to him and I said, doctor to doctor, I said, how do you do what you do? Mm-hmm. And he sort of got a little pissed off and a little offended by it. And I didn't care. Didn't care. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I didn't, I didn't want to offend him, but I had to ask him. I said, how do you deny people? And what if this was your wife? You want her to go to the hospital and vomit. You want her to be vomiting or... so bad that she gets ketotic and mm-hmm. has to go to the hospital for IVs, mm-hmm. and then she can have her Zofran, which we know worked in her first pregnancy. Right. Uh, you know, it's, 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 it's these sort of ridiculous things that happen. So recently, my, my partner told me that, you know what NIPT is? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Why don't you explain it? <laughs> He's testing me. 
Um, it's when we get the free, the cells that are in the mom's bloodstream in order to, to be able to test. Fetal for, cells, right. Yeah. Free cell DNA, right. Mm-hmm. So we're che- you're checking the baby's chromosome stuff. And now mm-hmm. it always used to be that women over 35 could have the test done and women under 35, you have to have a reason for it or they could pay for it or whatever else. Okay. Well now for whatever reason, insurance companies just sent my partner, uh, Dr. Waldman, a notice that she now needs prior authorization to get to do an NIPT on a woman who's over 35. Hmm. Now, why do you think the insurance company's asking for that? Because more tests are being done, so it's costing them more money. So they like they they'll discourage people from. Well, it's yeah. It, the second right? part is the part. It's it's mm-hmm. like if you the more hurdles you put in front of somebody, the more people are going to say, "Oh, just forget it. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to do it." I just those are the kind of things that I don't understand with insurance company because um, maybe because it's new technology, it's more expensive right now, but it actually saves um, having to do all these other tests that are antiquated at this point. I just don't. It doesn't make sense to me that doing that one blood test would be more expensive for an insurance company than all of the other tests that we used to do, including amniocentesis. And, you know, th- that's a lot more expensive of a procedure, I assume. Yeah, it all fits into this mishmash in my brain of, of stage two thinking and categorizing things and mm-hmm. and decisions being made by people who, who are, are distant from the actual care that's being given and the rules and the, and the policies, again, we get back to the hospital. Why does a baby uh, need to go to the warmer? Why does a baby need to have its cord cut promptly? Why isn't the baby set on the mother? Why do they prep a mother's vulva with iodine for a vaginal birth? Um, why can't a woman eat in labor? Um, why are they just discovering that maybe letting a woman walk around is a good thing? Uh, what's that one? I want to talk about this one. Oh, so you know, some, so this brought to lam- she's got this is important because it's laminated. It's laminated. It's a laminated <laughs> flowchart, and it's, it's frightening the, to me. It's it's, it's the like, neonatal resuscitation algorithm. So it's what we oh we just had we just took this yes yes. So this is very interesting. You and I took the test together, and I couldn't get on. I couldn't log on. So it took me until now to complete my test. By the way, I just <laughs> completed it. It's been months, but um which was timely because I had just gone to the hospital and I do this all the time and I, I, I know that they're going to do this in the hospital, but it really was highlighted for me because I was just taking this test. So in the hospital, we're all trained the same to do neonatal resuscitation, the hospital and out of hospital providers. We learn the exact same algorithm, right? Um, right, which, which is, yeah, which is sort of unfortunate for us, especially when we're taking the the simulations, <laughs> and we're, we think we're doing everything right, and the baby's heart rate is dropping. It's like, oh, we forgot to turn the warmer on. Okay, <laughs> you know, we're not used to all the equipment, right? Um, so, in the hospital, when I'm advocating as in more of a doula capacity, um, they always, always, always want the baby to cry. They always stimulate. They always put a hat on the baby, and they always want the baby to cry and they will irritate the baby for up to 10 minutes making the baby cry because and they'll tell the parents it's okay for your baby to cry it's good for your baby to cry now we know sometimes that's true when you have a baby that's really struggling we really you know we do irritate them and get them to cry but you're saying it's it's standard Standard. so you have a baby who's had a beautiful delivery is coming out of the womb into this new environment and is figuring out how to transition 
you know, there's lights and people and all of this stuff going on in the hospital. And now for the next 10 minutes, you've got some irritating nurse (laughs) making you cry when you don't need it. So if it's needed, great, right? So I looked at this algorithm and what it says is what we're supposed to assess when the baby comes out is term, right? This baby term, good tone. Is it breathing or crying? So or or the operative word and is we know that or. from being it didn't say it says or it doesn't yeah. say and exactly right so I'm kind of on this new kick like I feel like I want to take this laminated so you're, you're gonna you're gonna try to educate you're gonna try to change the policies at the hospital I really want to change the policies in the hospital I think that they're behind the times they're getting better with cord cord uh, delayed cord clamping which, you know, I think is amazing. More and more and more, it's just standard that they're doing delayed cord clamping. In the last couple of deliveries, I've seen a midwife and an OB milk the cord when a ba- when the baby came out, which is kind of cool, right? So, so pushing the blood towards the baby, trying to help give them a boost of that oxygenated blood. Yeah, but you know what? I, that, I always wonder about that sort of thing because mm-hmm. you're pushing in blood that's, all, that's actually supposed to be going out of the baby. Well, it's one of the things that they say, like if a baby is having a difficult time transitioning, that that, that pushing that blood towards them might actually help boost their Where system. Where did you hear that? Because that, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Um, it's a circulatory system. What's going out is coming back in, as long as the cord is still pulsating. Yeah. It's not pulsating. Milking, it really doesn't do anything anyway, because... You know, you can no, take no, no. This is this is moments or you know, with when it's still pulsing. So that doesn't seem like a natural thing to me because that's not something that would happen in nature. So no, it's not a natural thing, and it's not something that should be done standard. Just like it's not a natural thing to go and do chest compressions or breathe for a baby, but it's something that you can try if you have a baby that is compromised. Oh, so you're saying they only do it on babies that seem to be compromised. Yes. Oh, okay, yes. I didn't catch that. I thought you not, were saying that some of them were doing it. Not standard. So many people were doing it routinely. Yeah, no, I'm no, saying no, they're no. kind of catching up with some of this stuff and keeping the baby connected um, before c- cutting the cord and separating them in a baby that, that they feel like is compromised. I'm watching these babies and knowing that these babies just need a minute. Yeah, so what you're saying is some babies are McDonald's and some babies are Waldorf Astoria. Yes. Right. And everything should be individualized, right? I mean, there's not... Well, yes, but that's not how big works. Big doesn't work that way. And then what I always remember when I used to work in uh, smaller hospitals uh, out in Ventura County and stuff like that was that the nurses practiced the way the, the, the good old doctors practiced. And whatever the good old doctors had been doing for years was a standard. And if you came in and suggested anything different, they looked at you with, you know, cross-eyed from Sunday that, that there's something wrong with you. Yeah. Well, that wh- happens at Dr. Shavira's hospital sometimes, by the way, because they, oh, yeah, they don't practice like he does. No, so. he, yeah, but they yeah. yeah, but they do have a lot of respect for him. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I still remember after the, one of the twin delivers we talked about before where he wanted to get more than one person in the room mm-hmm. because she needed her support team. So the husband... And the doula and the midwife all were, he got them all into the C-section room. Mm -hmm. And of course, first thing Monday morning, he's to call from the uh, chairman of the department, you know, because no, because one of the nurses complained Hmm. and his, his argument was that aren't we here to serve the patient? The patient was very anxious about any interventions about anesthesia. She wanted her team with her. How am I not going to help her? Why is the policy overriding that if the anesthesiologist is okay with it and I'm okay with it, 
Why is some nurse not okay with it? Right. Right. Yep. And I can tell you why she's not okay with it because that's the way she's been practicing for 30 years. And, you know, it, she's probably afraid that if she breaks policy and doesn't say something about it, that she'll get in trouble. Well, I think also, don't you think, I mean, I've even heard you say this sometimes, you know, just kind of like telling one on yourself. You don't necessarily follow through on it, but that you're so used to doing something in a particular way that sometimes it's hard to break that habit. And I think that that when you... Oh, it's taken me years to, yeah. break, to break some habits. And sometimes it's scary to break a habit because that's your kind of your comfort blank. Not you in particular, yeah, but no, one. I get it, I know. Your, you know, your comfort <laughs> is you get in this groove, right? We probably do it when we drive and stuff. Like we have very particular ways that we know that we keep ourselves safe. And I imagine that when you're dealing with life and death in the hospital, the nurses, the doctors, you know, you get in this groove of like, this is what it, I do every time. And I, I know the me- mechanisms of it. I know my body muscle memory. Yeah, it's a, fr- it. it's a frightening thing though, that they, that I understand that birth can be life or death, but most of the time it's not. Right. And when you, if you look at every birth as a potential life or death, then you're, then, then, yeah, then you sort of overreact and, uh, you stimulate a baby to make it cry Yeah. because that's the way they used to do it in the movies. They used to hang them upside down, slap them on the butt. And we've progressed from there. So hopefully we'll continue to progress in the hospitals and and trust that most babies know how to transition. Yeah, but this is why when people ask me would I ever go back (laughs) and teach or would I ever go back and and work in a hospital, you know, it would be really hard for me to do that unless I was given sort of control of the unit. To, to, to do things the way I did. I would, and I would accept full responsibility if there were any bad outcomes. But, but you know, I don't want to be responsible for something that, I, that I'm being told by somebody because this is our policy of how to do it. I, 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 can't, I couldn't go through that. I can't, couldn't grow through the slowness of the way things are done, the way, you know, if, if, if I have a piece of equipment in my office that breaks, I buy another one. Yeah. If the hospital has a piece of equipment that breaks, it takes eight months to replace it because the process has to go through many committees that meet once a month and I, I you know I just I can't I can't do that sort of thing mm-hmm. and I can't be illogical for for the sake of money um, you know we used to have hematocrit spinners and your and microscopes for urinalysis in labor and delivery and we used to have a DNC machine in the ER so a woman came in with an incomplete miscarriage we could just take care of her right there and there they took away the DNC machine and they took away the microscope and they took away the hematocrit spinner so that we'd have to send the patients to the OR or send the blood or urine to the lab so they could bill for it. Mm. All right. It wasn't about efficiency. It wasn't about safety. It wasn't about uh, anything other than money. And I, I can't live in, I can't work in that world. And it's frustrating when I hear your stories or I hear all my other doula friends' stories about it. Um, it's, I, 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 I cringe because it's just, I don't know how you watch that stuff and know that what's being done is not, is not proper. How about this one? Same delivery, right? Um, the nurse had to check the mom three times within 15 minutes because she was moving so quick, right? Which was amazing. But, um, so she's in labor, she's, uh, pushing spontaneously on her side and the nurse like says to somebody else, not to the mom who's you know, barely coherent at this point. Um, I'm going to just check and see what progress, you know, how, how she's pushing. And, um, I said, please tell her before you do anything. And she goes, okay. She puts on her glove and 
proceeds to put her fingers inside of the mom's vagina as she's pushing without even saying anything. And I looked at her and I said, I need you to tell her before you touch her. And she was like, oh, okay. Like this is like it didn't a surprise that yeah. you should t- tell a woman before you stick your fingers in their vagina. I mean, it's just like they're so detached from this being a woman having... You mean that's a thing? You're supposed to actually tell women? Oh, I was like, yes, do it's a thing. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like so uh, upset. Um, So anyways, just that kind of stuff that I just am shocked. I'm shocked at the amount of um, like unconsciousness of this being a monumental, beautiful, extraordinary experience for these people, you know? And not to say that I don't have wonderful experiences in the hospital as well. And I know that these people have good intentions. It's just that the training and the the culture um, just does. Are they still pushing this. like when the baby does the baby go right to the mother's chest most of the time now? More yes, more okay. often than not. So mm-hmm. when the baby eventually leaves the mother's chest and goes over to the warmer to be wiped down or whatever they do, mm-hmm. are they still um, pushing things like vitamin K and, and hepatitis B vaccine? The B like vaccine that. doesn't happen right then. I think it happens the next day. Um, they don't push it. They're pretty. They're getting used to knowing that. So I think because I think that many hospitals that you don't work at are much worse than the ones you work at. I think the ones that you there work are at are though. becoming yeah. more prog- yeah. whether you want to say progressive or more or more traditional. Mm-hmm. I don't even like to call it progress because I think sometimes progress goes in the wrong direction. Mm-hmm. Um, progress for obstetrics has not been good. We, I, I would like to call it more traditional. Um, I think it's a better word. Yeah. I have a question for you. Okay. So we're talking about informed consent a lot, right? And um, where's the informed consent when they hang a bag of Pitocin after the woman delivers and don't discuss it with her? There isn't. There, uh, again, I, mean, how I've been, is I haven't been out of the consent? hospital. I have been out of the hospital for a long, long time. All right. Now, I've seen Dr. Chavira mm-hmm. giving, giving consent to people prior to like a C-section. He is extremely thorough, and yes, he takes he his time mm-hmm. to do that. Most of the most hospitals, the way it used to work was the nurse would just bring in a form yeah. with the words cesarean section, primary cesarean section written in. Everything else is pre, you know, prefab. Yeah. And the woman's just supposed to sign it while she's contracting or while oh, there's bleeding or whatever else. No one ever reads those sort of things, and that was considered to be informed consent. Yes. Okay. Clearly, it's not informed consent. Clearly, in a court of law, it wouldn't hold up. But it, it doesn't it doesn't really matter. You're right. There is no consent. Uh, well, again, I can't speak because I haven't been there. But they should be actually saying to the the the, the clinician who ordered the pitocin should be saying to the woman beforehand. I'd like to put some Pitocin in your IV to make your uterus clamp down a little bit. Would that be okay? They never But they never do that. Ask. And this woman had it on her birth plan that she did not want it unless there was a clinical indication of excess bleeding. And I look over and they had hung the bag and no one said anything. And I said, by the way, I want you to know that that's Pitocin. And, you know, I mean, and what did what, the woman say? She was like, well, is that okay? And I was like, I don't really know what you want to do at this point. I just want you, wanted you to know that they did hang it without asking. And so now that it's in, they're probably, because she was saying, well, maybe we can get the IV out now and everything. And I said, they're probably going to want this bag to complete before they're going to want to put it out. And I've seen women... Did the nurse hear you say that to her? I don't know. I'm careful 
because sometimes we can get in trouble. Yeah. Um, but the other thing that happens sometimes is that if the woman declines the Pitocin, then they will be more assertive and more vigorous with the massage, massage um, and say, we're going to have to do this even more aggressively because you declined the Pitocin. And it almost feels like punitive. Punitive, right. Yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't really doubt that it is. I, I, you know. There's another way. That's, that's why they should all come to home births, so they can see. You don't always have to do it that way. You don't yeah, well, they should also make physicians watch women labor, too. Yeah. Not necessarily at home. Just watch them labor at the hospital. Um, doctors don't ever watch a woman labor. They could have um, baby monitors with like the, the video, and then they could be watching the labor from home. That's a joke. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> Actually they, they can they can monitor they can read the monitors from home. I know. It's pretty amazing that they can do that wherever See, they want. See, I think it's I think it's the opposite of amazing. Well, I mean technology wise, I know what you're saying. Right. I think of, that yeah. what that now does is it, it the hospital does that so they can dump the reliability onto the doctor. Mm. You know, it was like it was like it having give a, them more freedom. It was like the it was like the era before having a pager. You weren't expected to be available twenty four seven. Now you are. The more technology you have, where you're linked in to their system, the 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 now the responsibility basically is shifted to you. So it's All not right. better for the doctor. Is that what you're saying? Well, I, I think it's some doctors who maybe OCD want to look at their tracings. They mm -hmm. can do that, mm -hmm. and I think it's convenient when a nurse calls you and says, "I'm I'm concerned about the tracing for you to be able to pull it up," but. If you can pull it up at any time, now aren't you supposed to be? I can I can already just see a trial lawyer saying, you know, Doctor Fishbein, you have an app on your phone that you can see the tracing. Why didn't you check on this tracing? Why didn't you check it every five minutes? Why weren't you watching it constantly? <laughs> right. What were you doing that night? Uh, you know, at two in the morning. Oh, I was sleeping. You were sleeping while this was going on. You don't care about your patient. I mean, you can just you can just hear the arguments coming out and the the vile venom being spewed by by how evil we are because we didn't watch the <laughs> app 24-7. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, it's the same sort of thing with EMR and sort of that, that sort of thing too. It's good. There are good, there's certainly good things and there are certainly bad things with EMR. Anyway, your experience at the hospital, uh, you know, I like hearing these stories because again, I, I don't go there You're very often. You're a little often. detached from it. And the, only, and the last couple transports I've had were to Chavira and, you know, he sort of commands the room. So yeah. it's, it's, it's great. Um, I remember that that role. I mean, when I, when I was backing up midwives, I would do what I could to get the midwife's clients to have what they really wanted, and do my best to do it. Which is why I, you know, was I was, you know, one of the lead backup physicians until I wasn't anymore. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we love having you available for. I backed up you guys for a long time. The stuff that you do now, but it was really hard to not have you in the hospital. Yeah. Losing that ability. And then we had really Dave yeah. until Dave passed away. Yeah. We right. don't really have a lot of options. Dr. Shavir is one of the only I know. The other few days. options that we have are not always good options. You've heard, I hear there are many people that don't have good experiences sometimes with the, with the other options that are available. Yeah. So... What, to summarize what I've been saying, though, is, is that it is a bit of a quagmire, and it really is hard to sort through when people ask me questions about why do they do this or why do they do that, and it's really hard to have an answer for them because the answers are illogical. The answers are, are again, I have to sort of explain to them that somebody thought it was a good idea, and they didn't think about what it would mean down the line. 
Mm-hmm. You know, it would be like sectioning all breaches, right? Because a one paper said so. But then you're just you're you're just passing the risks downstream to the next baby. Um, I I don't know how this ends. Um, people ask me, do you think it's getting better? Do you think it's going to change? And then every time I think so, and I think that they come out with a new statement saying people should be able to move around or or uh, you know, we should leave people alone. Then they come out with another statement saying we should induce everyone at 39 weeks. And, and they, they, they micromanage and, and um, everything is broken down. If you, if you read the journals that I read or some of the throwaway magazines that I read, it's like when I was at ACOG, it's like they talk in a, they talk in a language that's foreign to me. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you an example. I actually highlighted one in this magazine here. Um, this is this was uh, from the upright when I talked about the standing upright mm-hmm. uh, was a good idea. Mm-hmm. All right. <laughs> Quote: Some of the known benefits of being upright and mobile during labor, Miss Hirsch said, include shortened labor and reduced risk for cesarean delivery. Cost effectiveness of this approach for low risk women, she said, has not been fully explored. Okay. So, I mean, I would never think like that. Like they're thinking about cost effectiveness rather than what makes common sense and what works. Then they goes on saying, laboring upright is a no-cost intervention that leads to improved outcomes, decreased costs, and increased quality-adjusted life years during a woman's first and second deliveries, wrote Ms. Hirsch and her associates. This model argues for increasing systems factors that support women to be upright and mobile during labor, and in doing so, promoting improved health for our patients. What the hell are system factors? I don't know. And what was the improved life one and two? What was that? Improved <laughs> quality. Uh, you know, I don't know. I'm just saying that they, they speak a language that I, it's uh, it's um, quality adjusted life years. I have no idea what it means. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, if one of our listeners wants to look it up, Q-A-Y-L, no, Q-A-L-Y, and then and then send me an email. What uh, I mean, I could Google it and look it up too. That's hilarious. But uh, again, who thinks like that? What human being talks like that? Well, isn't that the point of, of doing all of this education and study is that you learn a language that then def- like sets you apart from people who are not educated so you have a whole distinction and language that actually like... That, that's but it makes, you an, it, it makes you sort of an elitist. It's like well, people yeah. that go to Oxford or Harvard yeah. can't talk to somebody from Missouri. Right, right. Yeah. All right, but there are more people from Missouri than there are people who went to Harvard. <laughs> so, uh, I, you know, I don't know. I'm just saying that... that uh, it's, 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 it's the, it's the quintessential problem that you and I will never solve. And you said, I don't know how this ends. That's one of the things you said a minute ago. And I would, I would think from a midwifery perspective it is going, we need to go back. We need to go back. We're doing that more and more. The more studies they do, the more they're realizing that we have made mistakes in how we're managing you think so? this. Do you actually yeah. you actually think that it's sinking in? No, but you asked how it would end, and I'm going to talk from an optimistic point of view because okay. that's what you like about me. Is that I think we need to follow the other countries that are doing much better with maternal health, and midwives need to be doing primary care and need to be supporting outside of this hospital environment because it's never going to change from being financially driven and risk management, but. If we put the hands back in the women and, and, and simplify this, I think we'll get better care overall. Change the culture. Yeah, we got to change the culture. Okay. Or we're gonna, it's going to blow up. I mean, that's...
what's what's happening. Well, it has blown. <laughs> it has blown up. I mean, we have a C-section rate that's five hundred percent higher than it was when you and I were kids. Right. So, so. we got to just keep 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 putting out those beautiful images on Instagram. Keep talking about it. Keep educating women. And keep listening to Doctor Stu's <laughs> podcast. This has been number one thirty. Again, we really appreciate your listening. We appreciate your responses. Yeah. Uh, please spread the word. Share us. Like us. Do whatever you have to do to get other people listening. Uh, to all our listeners, local and overseas, thank you again for so much. On behalf of Bliss Young, this is Dr. Stuart Fishbein signing off. Bye-bye. <laughs>